This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Val Wood is a best-selling author of historical romantic fiction, whose work has often been compared to that of Catherine Cookson. In Val's case, she has chosen her own seaboard locale of Hull and the East Riding of Yorkshire in which to set her books. And her highly evocative sense of place and landscape, coupled with her historical accuracy, has won her legions of fans around the world. The similarities to Catherine Cookson don't end there, though. Like Cookson, Val is a passionate supporter of libraries, literacy and sight-loss charities. All of her 28 novels to date have been recorded as audiobooks and, as we'll hear, her commitment to making print accessible to those of us who can't see to read goes back far further than that. Before I introduce Val, here's a clip from her latest book, Winter's Daughter, narrated by Anne Dover. There is wealth in this ancient town. There is poverty too, where people without any means or hope of survival take refuge in doorways until the break of day. There is also a cellar known as a safe haven for those who have nothing. Safe until the rains come. And it is here that a child is found. She speaks little, and when she does, it is in a foreign tongue. Her mother reputedly wore exotic silks, was beautiful with fair skin and hair, and took great care of her daughter. So where is she? And why would she leave the little girl in this soulless place? Chapter 1 November 1856 Come on, come on, get these children inside quickly. James Ripley, fair-haired, stockily built and above-average height, carried one child in his arms and another on his back as he urged on the other men who were steering the children and old women towards Hull's ancient Holy Trinity Church. More women followed, their arms piled high with thin blankets, old cushions and baskets of belongings, all wading through the rush of water that was overflowing from the drains and had poured down the cellar steps, threatening to drown them, and trying to avoid the large pools that had gathered in the dips and troughs and potholes in the street, while screaming and crying to others in the bedraggled crowd to hurry or die. Above them, a storm raged. Lightning fissured, lighting up the sky, the street, the pinnacles and towers of the old church. Thunder cracked and pounded, and women shrieked at each reverberation. Crash and thud as the sleety, spiky rain fell in torrents, drenching them when they thought they couldn't get any wetter. Valwood, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. As we've just heard from that clip, it's 1856 and the major fishing and trading port of Hull is being lashed by winter storms. And you drop us and your protagonist, James Ripley, straight into a flooded cellar that is being used by Hull's homeless and destitute. It's something that's going to change his life and form the core of this novel – Can you introduce us to him and tell us a little bit more about the circumstances he finds himself in? Yes, this is James Ripley, who is um, part of a shipbuilding family. And most of his relatives have lived in Hull for all of their lives. And his shipbuilding tradition goes back to his great-grandfather. Now, I've used the High Street previously in my very first book, actually, which would be published 30 years ago. And I started off, you see, with The Hungry Tide, and I wanted it to be about people of Hull, uh, the troubles and tribulations they had then. And so for, for this new book, well, really, a lot has changed, but there's a lot that hasn't changed, and there's still poverty in the town. 
And this does bother James. He's always been a kind, sympathetic man. And he is very aware that things are not right for everybody. Uh, he has this social conscience, I suppose. And really, when I think about it, that theme does run through quite a lot of my books of being socially aware and trying to help those who can't help themselves. He and his wife live in this rather nice house in, in High Street. And he's not what you would call a very rich man, but he is well established and he has sufficient money to keep them afloat. They have no money trouble, shall we say. But he's very aware that a lot of other people have. He sees them every day of his life because he's in the heart of Hull. And as it does explain further along in the book, that apart from the high street, which has lots of shipping merchants and seagoing company owners, there are within that street little alleyways dark, twisted corners where the people who haven't very much at all live and try to work. And there is work, but there's never enough. And so he always has known about the other side of life, and that bothers him. So when he gets the call, middle of the night or early morning, by his housekeeper, that someone has said that the cellar is flooded. He immediately knows which cellar it is. Now, I've used that cellar before, so I'm hoping it will strike something into my readers who would probably think I'm sure I've heard of this before. And so he, he knows immediately where he has to go. And the people there who live in it regard it as their, their home, their security. And so I wanted to use it again. I wanted to use poverty again because the last two or three books I have used families who don't have money issues but mm. they do have other life issues particularly the lonely wife who came to live in Hull from London but that's another story entirely so I wanted to use that again I just decided that I would go back to poverty and tell it how it is. And his instinctive act of kindness brings him into contact with a little girl, a three- or four-year-old girl called Floris, whose mother has left her in the care of these destitute people who are taking shelter in this cellar. And as I say, it, it will change his life. It will rekindle his marriage. And as the book progresses, we find out more about the background to Floris and her mother, Layla, who is from Hull originally, but not really from Hull. Yes, she was born in Hull. Her parents, who did live in Hull and were from Hull, they were quite well-to-do. They lived in the very fashionable Albion Street, which is still there today. And they, her parents were great travellers. They were almost platonic in their marriage, but not quite. And um, one romantic evening under those foreign dark blue skies, Layla became a part of their lives. They came back to Hull because uh, her mother didn't want to give birth out in the desert. And as she said, she really didn't want sand between her toes or any other mm. parts at all. <laughs> so, so back they came and Layla was born there. But as soon as she was old enough, they began their travelling again. and. I wanted to include in the book, I didn't want it to be all about poverty and misery. I wanted it to have some lightness in, in the book. And so I introduced Layla and hence came romance. And then, without giving too many spoilers, history rather repeats itself and Layla herself conceives and she and her husband and young daughter Floris return to Hull when circumstances demand. And this sets the scene for the mystery at the heart of the novel, which actually really reminded me of the Moonstone, because there's a sense of immigration, of, of people who have come from the East. And whereas actually in the Moonstone there's a lot of suspicion, there's a real sense of welcome in Hull for strangers who've been blown up on this shore. And, and who might need help. And it, again, there's a, a sense of kindness and the 
perception that there but for the grace of God go I, which we definitely see in the way that James and, and his whole family accept this little girl who, who looks quite different to them. That's right. I'm, gl- I'm glad you picked up on that, actually, because sometimes a novel can be too deep to gain what it's all about. But I hoped that this one wouldn't be because it was so important to get the poverty over. And yet I didn't want it to be all gloom and doom. There had to be some lightness within the within the novel. And that, that's what I was hoping for, that it would come from the, the Turkish aspect, uh, which Leila absolutely loved being there. Mm. She was totally absorbed within the families, with the people, and even dressed as the women there dressed. And she did that from quite a young age. So this is what I wanted. I wanted um, a mix, shall we say, of people and temperaments, because everybody was different. Uh, hence Moira's mother, who had no... This is James's mother-in-law. Yes, that's right. And she had absolutely no kindness in her whatsoever. And he didn't ever think about anyone else. Whereas James and Moira did. They were concerned even about people that they didn't know, like the boy Tom, for instance, who turned up. And they were worried about him. And yet he was of no relation to them. They'd only just met him. But they had this kindness inbuilt in them and I think well it it is well known that Hull is a very welcoming city town as it was and they always welcomed strangers I mean I've I've written about immigrants who have come to Hull um, in the 19th century and they were always always made to feel welcome. And it is, of course, the birthplace of William Wilberforce, the man who helped abolish slavery. Absolutely, that's right. So it it definitely is. It's buried quite deep, but it's still there today. I mean, we have lots of charities helping people who are just not able to manage for various reasons. It's just something that's here. There are so many charities in, in this area. Uh, who just care for, for others. Now, as you mentioned, there are characters like Tom and also Lizzie Chambers, who is one of the people who is rescued from the flooded cellar, who show us just how thin the thread that holds people in place in society can be and how often there is no safety net if that thread breaks. And it's something that... James and his wife Moira are alive too. But when we see this beautiful child emerging from a cellar, she is not yet ravaged by poverty, but it's a thin line. Give her another few weeks and and she might not survive. Exactly so, because there was no one in particular who was looking after her. They all looked after her, but she didn't have just one person who would take care of her. Lizzie was too old and already, well, desperate really to be somewhere else. And I think she knew that she wouldn't be lasting very long until her circumstances changed. And so the little girl hadn't been abandoned, but there was no one in her life who could give her a hug, give her food, give her anything. Mm. And yet, they all testified that she had a loving mother, but no one knew where her mother was. And of course, there was very good reason for that. Everyone thought she'd just left or she'd gone looking for her husband or something. And this all happened because her husband and she and her child were separated. And it wasn't that they didn't have money. But the money, English money and the Turkish money were in the wrong places, (laughs) unfortunately. So there was a mystery there. And um, my goodness, it it gave me a lot of heartache, this this story, because I was trying desperately to get everyone together and everything seemed to be going wrong. And I'm not very good with numbers. So I was getting some of my months and weeks and days mixed up, but I didn't want it to be over a long period. 
Mm. I want it to be over a short period. So I had great fun explaining it to my editor, copy editor, and everybody else who had a little look at it. <laughs> <laughs> but we finally got there in the end, and everything was as I wanted it to be. <laughs> but I thought, oh, my goodness, I will never do that again. <laughs> but it was just simply because of timelines, the different timelines between being over in Turkey and being in Hull. There was different timelines, different ways of travelling. And, of course, as I have said in the book, there weren't any trains in, in Turkey, in Constantinople, um, not Istanbul as it is now. Do you remember the song? <laughs> Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> that's the one, that's the one. <laughs> I can remember that very well. But I've said it once or twice and people just looked at me, what are you talking about? <laughs> Oh, I'm showing my age now, Val. <laughs> oh, well, aren't we both? <laughs> <laughs> now, as we can hear, the book is full of your trademark, wonderfully rounded characters, not least the character of Mrs Evans, the, the housekeeper to the Ripley's, and she is emblematic of just how much of the day-to-day organisation was wielded by women, especially the women below stairs in Victorian households. I absolutely love that side of it. I really I always try to include it's generally a woman because women were they're either meek as a mouse or they really know who they are and what they are and what they're going to do. And Mrs. Evans was one of those, right from being just a very young girl. She made a decision about her life. And she just took off and did it when she was about 14. But she was she was such a character. And I'd love to have someone like that within my books. There's just got to be somebody who can say whatever they like, really. And um, they disregard uh, the fact that they might be below stairs. They might not really be important in the scheme of things. But they do know who they are. And they make sure everybody else knows, too. Well, as a man who is married to a woman who was born in Yorkshire, I can tell you that it's very plausible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and it is actually the local Yorkshire women who come to the aid of the poor and the destitute who are being lashed by this awful storm. And actually next to them, the the help and the lack of shelter that the church give looks rather anemic. And I, I think both the women and, and the children in this book, without giving too much away, really show the way as far as charity and support are concerned. Yes, uh, that's true. And it even goes as far as the young boys, doesn't it, to uh, Bob and Matthew, who have already picked up on this, that they Bob particularly, because he he had nothing. He came from a very poor background. And yet he was really willing to 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 help out, as did Matthew, um, Moira and James's son. And he too wanted to help. And that, in a way, is almost part of who you are and where you came from and what you've learned through your family, which I believe is where it all comes from. Uh, and Bob particularly, because he, he knew what it was like to be poor. And just to clarify, Bob is the young man who the Ripleys, on the advice of Mrs Evans, have taken in off the street and given a job to do the odd jobs round the house. And he's roughly the same age as their son, Matthew, and whilst this book is very much about poverty, it's also about the importance of family and community. And I wonder if it was partly inspired by the experience that we've all gone through with the pandemic and just how important it is to have family around you to stop you feeling isolated and to give you hope. Yes, I, I think you are quite right, Red, because during the pandemic, I wrote The Lonely Wife. I was already writing it. I was near, near the end. And I found I was definitely affected by the pandemic. I'd never touched wood, had COVID. And I kept myself to myself. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the whole atmosphere of what was happening made a difference. Uh, I'm going to say mentally it made a difference because I felt 
I felt quite down. I mean, usually I can't wait to start another book as soon as I finish one. But after The Lonely Wife, I couldn't think of what to write about. And so finally I did what we're all supposed to do, and that is write about what you know. And so I decided that having finished The Lonely Wife, I would write about her children because they had gone through all the difficulties that her, their mother had. And I wanted to see how they would grow and what they would do. So I wrote The Children of Fortune. So I was actually in a comfortable circumstance with that book. But then when I'd finished that one, I thought, what am I going to do now? And I couldn't for quite a long time think until finally I thought, I'll travel abroad. Mm. I will travel abroad. <laughs> uh, I didn't do it. I actually didn't do it physically. <laughs> I haven't been, ever been to Turkey. I'm not a great traveller, but in my books, I have travelled all over the place. So with this particular book, uh, it was completely new territory for me. Even though I'd, I'd written Poverty before and I wanted to do that again, um, I also wanted something a little bit different. And so I thought, we are now in Britain, a very small country in comparison with so many others. And there is just so much going on in the world. Yeah, very worrying indeed. So I thought, well, I will choose a country. I decided that I would choose the Ottoman Empire. It was so huge, but things in the 19th century were starting to move, a bit mm. like today, really, with Ukraine and Russia. Um, people were starting to move and they no longer wanted to belong to the empire or take any advice from the current sultan. And this, of course, has all come from books that I read. Some books I've had on my shelf for a lot of years and never really used them for this particular country. Um, but I thought that would be quite interesting and yet still touch a chord with what's happening today. Because really, as writers, we can't help but be influenced by what's happening around us or even what happens to us. We, we change the whole time as we grow. And I am getting on quite a bit now. And so I've, I have seen a lot, not necessarily lived it, but I am observant. You have to be observant to be a writer. And I could see the connection somehow between what was happening in the Ottoman Empire and what is happening today. And I thought, well, there's a link there. So I will use Turkey as another aspect of this book, whilst I'm still using poverty in this country. And, of course, not just Turkey. As ever, one of the main characters in your book is the Humber estuary upon which Hull is built. And we will come on to talk about that more after this break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with internationally best-selling author of historical romantic fiction, Val Wood. And Val, before the break, we were talking about your latest novel, Winter's Daughter, which, like so many of your other books, is set on the Humber estuary in Yorkshire. And I remember you saying in the past that the estuary has become a particular friend of yours through your writing and is almost a character. It's where land and sea meet, land supposedly gives shelter to people. The sea can provide great bounty to those who work on it, but it can also destroy lives and leave the families of those who do work on it destitute, as we see in the character of Lizzie Chambers, whose husband was a trawler man lost at sea. It's a very precarious life for those who rely on the sea for a livelihood. Indeed. Um... I'm not from a seafaring family. Rather, my mother's side, the men were miners in West Yorkshire, and my father's side, they did, well, all sorts of different things. But I have no sea 
in my blood and yet it just draws me. It did from a child when we used to go to Scarborough to stay with my grandmother on our holidays. And I just loved the sea, not being in it um, because I can't swim, but just that feeling of strength and power. And of course, Hull was known as a, an estuary town. Uh, it was its livelihood. As I've said in the very first book that I wrote, Hull would be a dead town without whaling because that's what the men mainly did back in the early 19th century. Uh, and, of course, today, sadly, it's not the same. Uh, fishing has gone. But there's still a long Hessel Road, which is where all the fishermen used to live. There are still families there that are close together. They're close families, even if they're not related. And there's still that sort of strength and feeling that it is still a fishing town, and yet it isn't anymore, apart from some shipbuilding there. Um, but back in the 19th century, yes, it, the sea was just such part of their lives. And the reason that I started my very first book was because of the erosion of the cliffs, which was caused by the sea. It was called the German Sea back then, before it became the North Sea later on after the First World War. And I still think of it as that. I feel as if it has been part of the, of the whole conception of Hull as a town and then a city. That's where it developed, by the side of the, of the Humber. And so it's still very much to the fore, certainly in, in my books. I have written uh, other books which haven't been about the sea at all, but Sooner or later, something does creep in. Well, the sea is always in the background. You always feel the prevailing wind coming from the sea into yes. the faces of your characters. That, that's right. <laughs> and I know that sense of location is really important to you. I, I think I'm right in saying that before you start a book, you ask your daughter to drive around and find you a location. Yes, that's right. It has to be, I can't just figure something out from my imagination. I've got to go and find a place and think about that place as I'm writing the book. I mean, for instance, for The Lonely Wife, I had her drive me around. We went into North Ferriby, which is also close to the estuary, and we went up a hill, not many hills in this part of the world, but this was a quite a high slope. And I said, stop, this is it, this is it. And I could see the meadows on either side of the road. And I looked to the right, uh, my daughter's driving, looked to the right and I said, this is the place I want to be. And that is where I built my house. And I had looked in the Saturday's property post in the Yorkshire Post. And I see this lovely house. I mean, they, they put in some beautiful houses for sale in there. Uh, very large, double fronted. And I thought, that's the one I want. This was before he'd even started the book. And I thought, but I'll add an annex on. <laughs> it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't quite big enough. So that was the house I used. Now, I'm going to tell you just a little story here um, because, well, I was just so thrilled to hear it. But anyhow, last year I was giving a lecture at the local East Riding Theatre here in Beverly. And this young woman came along and she'd come by taxi from Hull to Beverly. And she'd called in at the local bookshop to say, do you know where the house is in North Ferriby that Val has written about in her latest book? And they said, no, apart from it being in North Ferriby. So she went off again to by taxi to go and look for this house. And she couldn't find it. And so she came to the lecture and she put up her hand when we came to uh, question time. And she said, I really want to know where that house is in, in North Ferriby Val. And I said, well, I'm really sorry, but there isn't an actual house. It's a house from my imagination. And she had gone looking mm. for this place. And I was, I was so sorry it wasn't a real house. And that has happened before. I, I don't know whether to stop doing it, actually, but I can't use anybody else's house because that wouldn't, that wouldn't do. I'm writing fiction after all. But that house is the one that I found, except it wasn't there. I just simply built it in my imagination. 
But this also speaks volumes for the thoroughness of your research. I know when you were researching your first three books, you took yourself to the centre of Hull and you walked around and you measured out the steps. But we're also talking about a city that was really badly bombed in the Second World War. Yeah, absolutely. So you're recreating a city that has in many ways disappeared. And and I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that when you moved to Hull, aged 13, it was following your father, who was an assessor, for the damage that had been caused by the German bombing in World War II. That that's right. I mean, I didn't see the worst of it, of course. But when I started work, which I did at just over fifteen, I I was working in the heart of Hull, and I worked for a very fashionable, high class uh, fashion salon, and I was the the youngest there. So if there was an errand to go, if somebody wanted a dress delivering, then I was the one who was sent out, and I often had to walk across the bomb sites. So I got to know them fairly well, and I suppose. Maybe that had something to do with it. I would see these damaged buildings and wonder. I've always had an imagination and wondering what if. And I think perhaps I'd maybe put in a house where there was a bomb site, maybe put in a few houses, certainly in the centre of a lot of shops had gone. And so I must have picked up on this and rebuilt the dom, the dam, <laughs> the dam bombage, as somebody said to my father. So <laughs> when he said he'd come to look around and do what, what, and she said, "Oh, you're from the dam bombage." <laughs> so I think maybe I was looking at the dam bombage and putting another house in its place. So I think I have always been imagining things, and because I used to write, I was only good at writing stories when I was at school, writing English useless at anything else so my imagination I think just took over always from the beginning and you augment your imaginative powers with reference books and photos of Victorian Hull and I know you're a real stickler for historical accuracy I am yes I really have to get it right you know, I need to, every time to look up, see when I mentioned Queen Victoria, where, where was she at that time? And I use famous people, too, who have lived here, like Mary Murdoch. Do you know of her? She was a great influencer during the 19th century of women. She was the first female doctor to come to Hull and start a practice here. And they all have played a part in being part of the citizenship, if you like, of Hull. We'll come on to talk about the place of women in your novels, but could you tell us about some of your favourite reference books? I know you're particularly keen on clothing. Yes, well, because I have myriads of, of books here, and I have a book that gives all the different types of, of clothing that women wore, from mid-19th century right through up to about 1950. So it's it's just a great book for me to read. And I use Sheehan's History of Hull. This book was being written by the man in the period I'm writing about. It was being written by him in the 19th century. And so, you know, everything is, is gospel, really, if he was tracking it. And historical fiction does offer an opportunity to hold up our own mores against those of a past time and see how much we've changed and and what, such as poverty, still exists in our world. And I suppose we see this particularly in your female characters. The Victorian era was far more one of conformity than we have. And yet... Many of the issues that women faced back then are still issues today. Well, I think back in the 19th century, I mean, this is just my opinion. Well-off women were probably worse off than the poorer ones because the poorer ones, I feel, they were a partnership with their male counterparts because they were often very strong. They had to be strong to survive. And often I feel that women did make decisions, uh, but the, the better-off women 
were not allowed. I mean, I have another book, which is about what women did in the 19th century, and they were nearly always single women. I mean, you've just got to think of Marie Curie, for one thing. I mean, she she was Polish, she wasn't English, but she did live in, in Europe. And she had the most awful, awful time trying to do what she was brilliant at. Mm. And she was constantly in trouble with everybody because of what she was doing. I mean, she was a, a two times Nobel Prize winner. And this other book that I have, it gives me all the women, all the Victorian women who did such wonderful things, inventing so many things which we use today. And I think that they had to be really, really strong in personality to be able to do that. Whereas the poorer women, you know, they had to work because there wouldn't have been enough money in the family for them to survive. Today, well, women have so much more than they had. I mean, for instance, in in, uh, The Lonely Wife, I keep bringing that up, but that was all about what women could and couldn't do. And she was in danger of losing her children. And that was based on a true case, that of Caroline Norton, who, who fought for decades to get custody of her children. She did, that's right. And that was that was just so important. I felt as if I had to use that in that particular book. And what was so sad about Caroline Norton was she fought for all those years until finally the, the law was changed and women could have custody of their children up to the age of, I think it was 15. Um, and, but sadly, what her husband did, he took the children away to Scotland where the rules weren't the same. And so she didn't see them. And you think how dreadful that was. So there's a great difference between then and now. But also, I think that women still probably don't have all their rights. Uh, And worse in many other countries, of course, much, much worse than we have here. And I know that you get people, your fans from all over the world, as far as... Canada and New Zealand and Australia writing in to say, oh, I, I grew up in such and such a village. Could you use my village or my family story as a basis for your next novel? That that must be wonderful. Well, it is, but it is wonderful. But I don't. I don't ever use real life incidences at all um, because it's not my story. It's their story. And there are quite a lot of people who write to me who say they are going to write a story about their family because it's such an interesting um, thing to do. And quite rightly that they do that. But it's not a novel. It's a life story of somebody else, Mm. somebody else's family. And it would be a good idea to do it and then have it published simply for the family. Because every family in the world, really, has some issue, and often they're all very similar. But for a novel, I can take anything from anything I hear and twist it and turn it into a book. And it's, I'm not hurting anybody by, by doing that. What do you think it is about people who have been born and brought up in Yorkshire that it is so much part of their identity, even if they have moved to somewhere such as Canada or New Zealand or Australia? It's written through them like a stick of Blackpool rock, isn't it? Sorry it's, to, it, yes, to, to quote Lancashire at you. but um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. I think, I think it's not just Yorkshire. I think maybe it's elsewhere as well. But I do think it's very strong in Yorkshire. Um, I mean, I'm from West Yorkshire. And yet I came to East Yorkshire. But that strain of Yorkshireness came with me. And it, it is it is strong with me. I feel very much that I am a Yorkshire woman. And certainly I, I do feel as if I've got that Yorkshire streak. Uh, Yorkshire pudding streak, shall we say. Not <laughs> quite the same as Blackpool Rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever the case, you are internationally recognised as the Catherine Cookson of Hull. And I know your debut novel, The Hungry Tide, won the Catherine Cookson Award. And you set up your own award to encourage other writers. Yes. I mean, I have this competition going. I have to say I have some help with that, but we decided that 
this would be a really, really good thing to do. And I'm all for encouraging people to do whatever they think they can do. I think everybody has something within them that should be brought out, whether it's knitting or sewing or drawing or writing. And I only know about writing and I know where it comes from. It has to be, it's no use thinking I want to write, make a lot of money because that is not going to happen. And there are so many writers today, far more than when I first started back in 1993. But I do believe that we all have something in us that can be stretched and not just writing, but I say other things too. But for me, I wanted to encourage other people. I, I had a very good tutor. I started, oh, in the 80s, I suppose it was, and uh, found this tutor who was running um, a regular writing class. And she wasn't there to teach us, but she was there to bring out whatever we had inside us. And I followed her around for about 10 years just listening to her. So, you know, whatever it is, I, I do believe in encouraging people to do whatever they're good at or don't know that they're good at, actually, until they start. And and long service is, is very much in your DNA. You are the vice president of Site Services Hull, and that all stemmed from you seeing a newspaper advert for a local talking magazine for blind people looking for volunteers. And and you volunteered there for, was it 27 years? Yes, almost 30 years. Oh, my God. Yes, I know. I can't believe that. How did I manage to fit that in 30 years in my life? Because I am very old now. And um, not that I feel it, but I am in years only. And by being with a talking magazine, um, they had exhibitions where people would come, people who could actually supply blind people with something, either a a proper telephone or something like that. And so we used to meet there. It was called Herrib in those days, which was Hull and East Riding Institute for the Blind. Uh, But they've changed it. They changed it a few years ago to site support, uh, which meant, of course, that they would support other people who are not blind, who were visually impaired or perhaps just having macular problems, that kind of thing. And so the, I, I continued with that association with them. I'm still with them. I'm vice president with them and really proud for, for that opportunity that they've given me to, to, to still be with them. And I believe that there's a, a personal family reason that you have such empathy for blind and partially sighted people. Well, my granny was blind. Um, She came to live with us after I got married and then she used my bedroom. And I saw how she managed and I have problems. I have glaucoma. And only this year, um, I was really very dismayed because I had cataract replacement lenses um, in 2016. And then my vision started to fail me. I couldn't read. And I couldn't see the computer all that well. And it turned out that the cataract replacement lenses had started to thicken. And so the light wasn't getting through. And, well, I was at the end of Winter's Daughter almost. I couldn't see. And I went weeks and weeks and finally had to go and see someone. And it was fixed that same evening by having laser treatment. And... Another boon for all of us who can't see to read is that every single one of your novels has been made into an audiobook, and they're really synonymous with the incredibly talented Anne Dover, who, well, just brings all those wonderful Yorkshire characters to life. She really does. I mean, I can sit and cry sometimes how she's putting my characters out there, making them live. And I have fairly regular correspondence by email nowadays with her. And you know what she did during the pandemic? She built her, had a studio built in her garden so that she could still keep on recording. And she's still doing that now. And it's, that's just fantastic. It really is just fantastic. 
Well, I know that her readings of your books have given thousands and thousands of people worldwide an enormous amount of pleasure, myself included. But I hope that after this final break, you will share some of the books that have given you pleasure through the books of your life. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week with Val Wood. Val, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Certainly there was that love of reading. Um, I never, ever thought of becoming an author. It just didn't occur to me. I didn't know any authors. I read and read and read as a child. And then I discovered Little Women, my go-to book. It was the characters that were my friends. I knew them so well. The favourite, of course, I think with most people, was always Joe. A lot of empathy with Beth. And I used to think that Amy was a very spoiled girl, which I wasn't. I was never spoiled at all. But I absolutely loved that book. And it's not all that long ago, but I'd already written several books and had them published that I decided that I would love to write a Little Women book. And so I wrote my own Three Sisters And that really was based on the book of Little Women. It, I wasn't copying by any means. And actually, my original copy, I can't read it now because the text is too small. (laughs) And I don't really want to buy another one because I think rereading the whole book again might spoil it because I have it in my head. I know this family. I know what traumas they went through. But I decided that I would write my own book of three sisters and following similar circumstances, but in their case, losing their mother and their father bringing them up. And then he disappeared. And so I took off at another angle entirely. Is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? One book, um, which came out as a, as a film, and then I, got the, I bought the book, and it's the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. You know that one? <laughs> no, it's and a new one on me. <laughs> is it? Oh, well, it's just, it's just a brilliant book, and it's, it's written in letter form throughout. The writer, actually two writers, Mary Ann Schaffer and Annie Barrows. But the, the story is about a young woman writer who hears from someone living in Guernsey and asking her various questions about books. And they begin a conversation in letter writing. And then other people from the same place, they also start to write to her. And it's, it's just delightful. It really is. But it's about a, a really difficult subject of when Guernsey was commandeered by the Germans during the, the last war. Jersey and Guernsey and all the Channel Islands were. And the inhabitants had to work alongside the Germans who just took over the islands. It was really just dreadful. But the Guernsey Literary and Literary Peel Pie Society novel, it, it really is such a lovely book. And it's real. So that one is one of my favourites too. I do try to read the newer books, but sometimes I just have to put them down as I can't get on with them. And one time I would charge on until I reached the end. But now I think I haven't got much longer to (laughs) read books. (laughs) And I always read in bed anyway, and quite often I fall asleep nowadays. Um, But the love of books is always there, isn't it? Don't you think? It's just wonderful to read someone else's fiction or faction or just reading something to find out their style and how it works. And there are many books that I wish I could have written. And is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? This is one of the books that I do use in my writing about Victoriana, and that is The Victorian House by Judith Flanders. And she 
she'd just tell you about her whole house, starting at the kitchen and going through the drawing room, upstairs, downstairs, everywhere. And there are photographs in it which display people like Thomas Carlyle, born in 1859 in front of his London home. It's home of a quarter of a century. And it would be another six years before the Carlyles added a servant's bedroom on the top floor. Until then, the, the servant slept in the basement kitchen, the windows of which can be seen behind the railing. And yes, it's a sort of a house where you go down the steps to the basement. And this actually is probably where I, I decided to use Albion Street in Hull because those are Georgian houses with the basement below. It's just a brilliant book. And she was telling it as it was from her mother and her grandmother. And it is it's just fascinating, really. And it also gives uh, pictures of women walking out with their bonnets on, their very nice dresses, walking along together. There are pictures of them sitting in a chaise, an omnibus, mm. that kind of thing. And you could almost drop back into the 19th century when you see these, these lovely photographs and explanations of, of what they did and how they did it. And I use this quite a lot when I was writing The Lonely Wife. So I tend really to read the books about the past rather than fiction, I suppose. Valwood, thank you so much for giving us such insight into how you research your historical novels and for spending so much time with us this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure, really has. It's so lovely to talk about books and that's just been brilliant absolutely lovely thank you so much it's time to turn the page on this episode of my life in books thanks again to my guest val wood and to the show's producer sean priest he and i are already working on the next episode so don't forget to join us same time same place to hear another top author talking books in the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or check out our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.